Hello, everybody, and welcome to Screen Club's episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I should have said, hello, neighbor. How's it yeah, going? Hello. I'm sorry. Let's let's start that all over. Start again. over. <laughs> From the top. Hello, neighbor. I do have two wonderful neighbors here with me today. Caleb, Virginia. How are you guys doing? Hi. Doing, doing well, all things considered. Uh... I'll let the audience know ahead of time. I am babysitting my son tonight. So we actually have an honorary extra neighbor. And if you hear him, cool. he's just excited to be here. And, you know, also just shares a deep, deep love at 14 months old for Mr. Rogers and everything he really stands for, you know, especially what he's done for um, community media. I think that really resonates with my child. So he just wanted oh, to yeah. you know, be a part of this, too. That's fantastic. It's an honor to have him here. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, so again, we are going to be talking about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood today. Um, the show has been around since 1968, so even though that's the case, I'm sure there's some people out there who have never experienced him before. So I suppose a spoiler alert is in order that we might spoil some uh, some episodes and cliffhangers and things like that. Uh, so watch out for that. And of course, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the classic show, is what we're going to be focusing on, but we will be touching on a couple of movies that came out, and I know he had a Canadian broadcast version of the show early on, too. So this is a pretty free-flowing experience if you want to jump in and talk about any aspect of him, because it's more the essence of Mr. Rogers is uh, what we're getting into. So um, I want to just kind of start with our background experience with him. So, Caleb, let's go to you first. Did you grow up watching Mr. Rogers? And if not, you know, when did you first see it? Well, of course I did. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, I I want to make sure that if anyone's, if anyone's watching who's a little bit unfamiliar with uh, yield times, yield and times, uh, it used to be, for a certain segment of the population that you had about four channels on your TV and uh, you had a couple networks and then you had PBS. And during the day, if it's summer vacation uh, or you're out of school, um, these are your options as a, as a child. You have game shows. Are you four ready to try to win a prize? Yeah. All right, let's show them the first item up for bids and the price is right. A beautiful bed. You have soap operas. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Or you have PBS. This is PBS. Because that's all that we're showing. That's all that was there. Um, and I think I would have chosen PBS anyway, uh, even if there was something great on, but, uh, that was definitely my experience, uh, in, in those decades before cable and before VCRs, even before being able to really choose your viewing. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you the first time I saw Mr. Rogers cause he was just sort of always there in the atmosphere. Um, and I was also really lucky to have a younger brother seven years younger than I am so I was able to sort of 
do a repeat childhood as he was growing up, uh, you know, and be watching Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street and all those great programs again, sort of for the first time through his eyes. And it's kind of neat with this show since it ran so long that I think most everybody was able to have that experience. So even for our generations, our parents presumably grew up on it too. So everyone's kind of living vicariously through uh, the young generation watching that. And I feel like we had that same point when we were talking about Star Trek too. Um, so that, that's really neat. Mr. Rogers and Star Trek, pretty much the same thing. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> Virginia, right? I know, but seriously, um, Virginia, what about you? Did you grow up on it? And also, are you raising your son on Mr. Rogers? So great questions. Um, really important questions, actually, especially as a parent. I did grow up on it. And similarly to Caleb, it was kind of that ubiquitous, like it was just always there. And um, dating myself a little bit as a certified member of Ye Olden Times as well, um, there was like a block of shows on PBS that you could watch in the afternoons. Um, Eureka's Castle was one of them. Ooh, Shining yeah. Time Station was one of them, which was a, a kind of uh, live action accompaniment to Thomas the Tank Engine, which was like an animated, but it was like claymation, maybe? stop motion i don't know it was animated it's british uh and uh shining time station was a live action component to it where um ringo star was <laughs> the conductor at one point thomas is a tank engine who lives at a big station on the island of sodor He's a cheeky little engine with six small wheels, a short, stumpy funnel, a short, stumpy boiler, and a short, stumpy dome. So it was a very odd show, but really cool. But similarly to Mr. Rogers, utilized a lot of puppetry, which I think was really big, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s in terms of... Uh, by the way, Shining Time Station came out much later, but just was kind of also in that same block but i think uh i just really associate i don't know there's uh it was like a good show to watch and i don't mean like empirically it was well made i mean like it was one of those shows that just kind of the um the importance of goodness of kindness of of friendship things like that it was so heavily um kind of talked about in such a big part of the ethos of the show that I think I really associated it differently than maybe some of the other shows I might have watched, maybe like a, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something like that, that maybe wasn't, it was cartoon violence, obviously, it wasn't anything that I shouldn't have been watching as a child, but I think in my mind, I kind of categorized them a little bit differently, you know, um, Lamb Chop, could also probably be thrown into this mix as nice. well. Um, yeah, that old dirty sock puppet. Um, but there was just so much of that that I think I really, like to Caleb's point, just really associated with kind of always being there, just very ubiquitous. So I don't necessarily have this memory of like the first time I ever watched it because it was kind of just always on. And also as um, a child kind of growing up in a lower income household you know i had a, a single mom who you know raised us on a waitress salary my my sister and myself you know um it really speaks to the importance i think of public 
broadcasting. I don't know if you can hear my child's toy singing right now, but that's why my mic is <laughs> muted in between me talking. Um, but it really talks and speaks to that, I think, because I didn't have cable, right? I didn't have Cartoon Network. I didn't have Nickelodeon. I didn't get those things until much later in life, almost really adulthood, to be honest. And that's not true. My dad's house had cable eventually, but for the most part, it was feeling like I was still connected to this really quality programming that I actually enjoyed, but that I could get with my little like bunny ears satellite, you know, it wasn't a satellite. It was like an antenna that helped us get the channels. And, um, like, again, I'm dating myself as a ye old times person, but when I was a kid, I have a very, very clear memory of, um, the year that my dad bought a color television. Ooh. Yeah. So I think that also was probably due in part to our socioeconomic status. Cause he had one of those old TV sets that you would like turn the crank and that would like turn the channels, which now it's like, Oh, that's super dope. I wish I like had that instead of like this dumb flat screen that I've been rocking for like six years. But you know, that was a big deal. Like getting this new thing was a big deal for us. And so I liked Mr. Rogers cause it kind of, and PBS in general, public broadcasting, because I think it put a lot of people on the same um, playing field, you know, and kids are mean and can be, you know, kind of mean and, and finding something to pick on someone for is easy when you know that they're the poor kid or whatever. And so I liked that public broadcasting kind of it felt like it leveled it out a little bit because we all watched Mr. Rogers and we all watched Eureka's Castle and all of these things. And it wasn't something that I had to have money to participate in. And so I know we'll get into it much later. Um, and that was one of the like photos that I wanted to like send when we were talking about the prep and stuff and just knowing as an adult and being involved in community media as an adult, um, knowing how much Fred Rogers, the person fought for, this medium and was really integral in making sure that, you know, PBS, NPR, things like that, as we know it today are due in large part to the fact that he went in front of the Senate and, and argued about the importance of it and really changed a lot of popular opinion. And so, um, I can't wait to show my kid. I mean, I think right now he would probably understand bits of it, but I can't wait to have that be a thing that kind of, as he's learning what his own emotions are, you know, that can be a companion to telling him that it's okay to have them. And this, we all have them and here's ways you can process them. And, and what a great thing for, for children to have that was specifically geared toward them that didn't talk down to them, but made them feel like full people, you know? Um, so I think as an adult now, especially in the middle of a raging pandemic when we're all just trying to find, you know, those bits of community and stuff. It's nice to be reminded that, you know, if, if we were lucky enough to have grown up with Mr. Rogers, all of our origins are kind of based in this idea that, you know, your feelings are valid and, and it's okay to be however you are and you're going to still be my neighbor and I'm still going to be your friend. And, and, and what a great, I don't know. What a great ethos. What a great way to live life, you know, so.
Well, and to go back to a point that you made kind of early on there about um, uh, public broadcasts, or I guess more like educational programming like this that's geared towards kids and, um, you know, figuring out your feelings and kind of leveling that playing field, as you put it. Um, my understanding is Fred Rogers, when he was growing up, was bullied. Um, and I think that that definitely geared the direction of the show and why he wanted to do that. And although he did live a privileged life, um, he was not raised on a low income or anything like that. And he kind of kept that under wraps. Um, he still wanted this to be accessible. And that's the big thing with PBS as well as NPR, as you mentioned. And we are going to get into that whole thing about um, him talking to the Senate. But the accessibility is the big aspect of PBS and why his show existed there. Um, and prior to that, it had existed on like an educational network, uh, which we still have networks like that that exist today. So he was picked up later through PBS, which everybody knows that. Um, that station. But it's interesting to see that he came from kind of a bully, bullied life and then went into teaching kids how to manage those feelings and be nice and be more accepting of other people. Um, well, it, I just, sorry, a tiny thing. So yeah, yeah. I have a 14 month old. I just, I, I said this at the beginning, right? So I watch a lot of cartoons now and we watched the movie Zootopia quite a bit because my, my son loves Judy Hopps as we all should. What a great hero. Um, and there's, a, I don't know if anyone's seen it. Spoiler alert, because I'm assuming Caleb hasn't, but I'm going to just go into something that I think is like a, a direct result um, of Mr. Rogers, right? And something that blew my mind because just the scene in of itself would never have existed in, you know, the cartoons that we watched when we were kids, right? 30 years ago. <laughs> LOL, I'm getting old. Um, there's a scene later in the movie where Judy, you know, she's kind of had a, a, a crescendo tumbling from being a police officer. So she goes back home to work on her parents' carrot farm and she runs into her old bully. And this guy physically bullied her. He made fun of her publicly in the middle of a play at the beginning, you know, and we kind of set it up that, you know, he's a, he's a fox, he's a predator and he's, you know, and, and that's why some people think foxes are, are bad and da da da. And he comes back and she meets him as an adult. And, you know, you find out that he's been working with her parents who own a carrot farm and they're partners in a new venture. And he comes to her and I'm going to do my impression of Gideon because I just do a really good Southern accent. But he says, you know, I just really wanted to apologize, Judy, because I had a lot of unchecked rage and aggression when I was younger. And it really manifested itself in, you know, a need to bully people. And, you know, I was just a real jerk. What? a wild scene to be in a children's movie and to have that kind of resolution that felt so organic, that felt like a conversation you could have as a child, but knowing Gideon probably went to some therapy, felt, got in touch with those feelings, you know, and it like stuff like that wouldn't have happened without Mr. Rogers. I, I cannot tell you for sure that the writers of Zootopia were like, let's put in a Mr. Rogers moment. But I know that that kind of awareness and, and putting that in a, ch a child's movie, a movie made for children, there's no way that that I think would have happened without the influence of Mr. Rogers. And so it's just been such a nice thing watching the movies that my son is going to grow up with and knowing that like, you know, those kind of things are, are, 
sprinkled in now as a way to teach children very young that that can be possible and, you know, that that kind of behavior isn't cool and being a bully isn't cool. So it just, it was weird. I watched it last night and it just made me think of it because it just, that wouldn't have happened, you know, in a cartoon we would have seen 30 years ago, you know, like Rocco's Modern Life, they would have like physically smashed somebody in the face and then like made fun of them and like moved on, you know? And so it just, it's cool. The, the influence that you can see, the ripple effect that you can see that he's had in media made for children is really cool. Also, watch Zootopia, I guess, Caleb, because it's a banger. Shakira yeah. does the soundtrack. Nice. <laughs> All right. Okay, you got me. I'm watching it tonight. Um, well, we certainly have a lot to unpack with Mr. Rogers, but I kind of want to back it up um, to get into more of his history before we dive too deep into the show. And um, a special shout out to Caleb for doing some extra research for this one. Caleb, do you want to take us on a trip down memory lane and kind of tell us about how Mr. Rogers got into this? I mean, he wrote the episodes, he created the characters, he scored ev most everything or wrote a lot of songs for it, right? So what's his background? Like why, what kind of led him towards this? I don't usually do a lot of history or context or anything, but <clears throat> just this once, sure. Thank you. We appreciate it. Um, as early as uh, 1953, he uh, joined a public TV station in Pittsburgh, WQED, ED for education, I think. Um, and that was after he was all set to go to seminary school um, and came home right before that, maybe came home for the summer. Um, and his parents, being very affluent um, at the time, had a very early television set. And actually, this this took place in like 48, I think. So he's looking at this thing like, what is this brand new thing? Television, this is crazy. And he's watching it and sees just the most inane garbage, especially aimed at kids, just kind of a more of a circus atmosphere, a lot of just bombardment of just noise um, and nothing that really of value. And so he thinks to himself, you know, I hate this. Uh, maybe I can do something about it, uh, which I think is really an incredible turning point. And he changes the course of his life, um, gets into television. Uh, in 1954, he's got um, a show called The Children's Corner on WQED. Uh, where he's the composer of the music, he's the puppeteer, kind of accidentally the puppeteer. If you watch um, the documentary, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, there's a great story about that in there, um, with his partner and host, uh, Josie Carey. Um, during that show, uh, which runs for, I believe, the next decade, he starts to create some of his earliest characters, some of the puppets and um, the citizens of the land of make-believe that you'll see for decades uh, on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, it, he moves to Toronto in 1961 and starts uh, the first iteration of Mr. Rogers as a show on CBS there. Um, and for the first time he appears on camera during that version of it um, as an actual personality himself. And I didn't know that. I always thought that was really strange, that Mr. Rogers one word. No. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that that's how it started, too. But, I mean, you kind of say it together, like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. 
kind of a good gimmick, and I think it's like it's kind of cool that it's it's aimed toward kids who are just hearing things like that. They might hear it as one word. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, 1962, he graduates from the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary with a bachelor's degree in divinity. Um, he becomes a Presbyterian minister, and 1966, he acquires the rights to the show officially. Instead of going to Hollywood, instead of going to New York, instead of going anywhere, he, he goes back to Pittsburgh, his hometown, where he pretty much stays for the rest of his life and produces uh, the show. 1968 was when Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was first broadcast uh, as the show that we know today. And um, by 1970, I think PBS had officially acquired it. So there's pretty much a through line from 1970 to the end of the show in uh, in 2000, December of 2000, not much changed about how it was produced or, you know, who was involved. And, uh, you know, it was always his singular vision and his sort of perfectionist attitude toward the importance of the material that, that always guided it and, and never seemed to be muddied by outside influences. Yeah, well, and... Um... You had mentioned with the timeline of it shifting over to PBS that it was a concept before PBS took it. Um, Earlier we'd talked about how he went up and spoke to the Senate when there was a proposal to defund um, public television completely. So I'm going to pull up the wonderful picture here. I think it's, it's safe to say if it wasn't for Fred Rogers in this case, going to the Senate hearing and speaking on behalf of, I mean, not just his show, uh, that was a big part of it, but just the importance of public broadcast. Um, I don't know that PBS would necessarily be around. They were going to completely defund it. And Fred Rogers was definitely one that got out there to um, do all the fundraising that he needed to for his show. Uh, I thought I heard a rumor that he didn't take a paycheck but, you know, I might be wrong on that because you got to live. Um, but that's sort of the spirit of like nonprofit work anyway, is you're not necessarily in it for the money. Um, but even if you're doing the fundraising, I mean, I think he said something in that Senate hearing that the budget for his show at the time or just prior, it was like they got like $6,000 and that only covered so much like a teeny bit of animation. You know, it doesn't even cover the whole show. So trying to put it into perspective, and I believe he started his very first show with some budget of like $30 or something like that, which I know back in that time it was, um, it would, you know, be more money currently, but still that's a very That would be like $3,000. Right, right. You know, (laughs) but still like you hear $30 to create a TV show, even if it's super short, like, holy cow, how can you do that? But he was pleading to the senators that defunding um, public broadcast like PBS takes away the opportunity, that platform for folks to get out there and create content that's really important and educational and not just noise and garbage. But um, these these channels, uh, um, technically this funding is for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and that's not just PBS, that would be like NPR as well. So it's not just for educational kids shows. You're talking news resources and ways for communities to connect and getting other educational 
information out there or just, you know, news out there too. Um, but he was pleading a case that kids need to have a message like what his show is getting across there. And we know that PBS is notorious for shows like this, whether it's Sesame Street or um, what's that, Daniel Tiger. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of kids shows. There have been so many on there. And so he pled this case. And I think they said at the end, like, well, you just earned yourself something like $20 million or something like that. Like, how incredible is that? Um, I encourage uh... people to go oh sorry Caleb you go first go, go ahead I was gonna say I encourage people to YouTube that video you can find it very easily on YouTube it will make you cry because you know the Senate you know the Senate it was the Senate Committee for Communications I believe or the Judiciary Committee for Communications and the the person that he's kind of pleading to at the end you know you can see that he's like visibly moved you know and to I don't know, to have moments like that actually caught on camera instead of just being this like myth that we hear about. It, it's very cool that it's like there and available. So I truly encourage people to go YouTube it because it's it's worth the watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's one of my favorite little uh, clips of all time, especially because you hear about that happening and you think, well, you know, the headline is like Fred Rogers saves, you know, public television. And you think, well, Okay, but there's got to be more to it than that. And I don't know. I think it's one of those rare cases where the myth lives up to the reality uh, or vice versa, because um, I think in context, uh, everyone that had been making their pitch to the senators or specific senator, I'm not really sure who was basically going to be the one who made the decision, whether it was 20 million or nothing. And I think that I think that public television would have continued, but I don't think it would have lasted long. I think that they would have had to produce their programs so cheaply that the quality would have been such that people would have stopped watching. I think that's the point of what they were arguing for. Um, he, I think he was possibly the last person to speak after like days and days of this going on. And you can see that they're irritated by it. All right, Rogers, you got the floor. <laughs> Senator Pastore, this is a philosophical statement and would take about 10 minutes to read, so I'll not do that. Uh, one of the first things that a child learns in a healthy family is trust, and I trust what you have said that you will read this. It's very important to me. I care deeply about children. My first children. Will it make you happy if you read it? I'd just like to talk about it if all it's right, all right. Sir. When it gets to Fred Rogers, he really just kind of starts talking and he really just speaks in the way that you're used to him speaking. Bombardment. I'm very much concerned, as I know you are, about what's being delivered to our children in this country. And I've worked in the field of child development for six years now, trying to understand the inner needs of children. And it's almost like he casts a spell over the whole room. And you can hear sort of in the beginning, you can tell that he's nervous. You can hear in the beginning people shuffling around, almost like you can hear some kind of nervous laughter when he starts talking. And then as it goes on, the room just gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And they're just 
it's like all of a sudden it's turned to Mr. Rogers sitting there speaking and all of these adult men are little kids sitting on the floor on the carpet squares in front of him. Could we get a copy of this so that we can see it? And maybe not today, but I'd like to see the program. I'd like very much for you I'd to like see. I'd like to see the program itself or any one of them, you see. And it's it's like six minutes. In six minutes, he completely changes the course of history for this medium and for education through television. And he I mean, it's right there. It's it's not it's not this thing that you can exaggerate. You can watch it. You've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. Well, and the other part about that, too, is the main senator that he's speaking with, I think, who you're kind of referencing there of making the decision had never seen his show before and had yeah, no idea. Right, right. And he says that he's just, you know, I'm not familiar with your show. And so the fact that Fred Rogers can go to someone without having that persona already known, you know, it's like a blank slate and he still just blows him out of the water. And I think the guy even said, like, I've got goosebumps. I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy. And this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. <laughs> Well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. Amazing, but I, yeah. I think that's just the thing about him. He was an incredible speaker, and even though he was making kids' shows, he, he was never condescending with how he would speak. Um, and I think that comes from the way that he speaks to his audience in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is he talks to kids on their level, but not at them, you know, and doesn't talk to them like with super highbrow kind of adult language, but doesn't dumb it down. And I think that's kind of his argument with a lot of kids shows is they tend to just be garbage and, you know, like gibberish kind of language and silly and, you know, fart jokes and things like that. And he's saying, no, we need to speak like kids as the future adults are going to be, but you got to see the world through their eyes too. So get on their level, but treat them with the same respect that you would to any other adult. Um, so the fact that he can, he's not like turning on a switch and shifting from the Mr. Rogers persona over to Fred Rogers, he's the same guy and can speak to a committee like that and have them change their mind and give them $20 million is just absolutely incredible. I think it's wonderful. Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> and I believe it was in 2017 that this, or at least pretty close to this, was kind of on the table um, when I, President Trump was trying to change the budget again and pull the funding from public broadcasting and shift that around. And, and it's tough because the arts tend to be on the chopping block first. I mean, that's, it's not that anyone's necessarily targeting um, these avenues, but uh, yeah, that's kind of the nature of the arts is they tend to get cut first and thankfully they didn't get cut. 
Yeah, as a choir kid throughout the entire 90s, it was every single year it was, we're going to get cut, and what's not going to cut get cut? Sports. Right. No choir, but sports. Yeah. There's always just this thing of like, I wonder if we'll even have a choir this year. Yeah. I wonder and if we'll have also, a musical. You know? I mean, the fact that he admitted that he hadn't seen a show who, you know, his decision was going to be the deciding factor. I don't know if you just said that when I ran over to deal with my kid, but um, <laughs> that... I think speaks to a lot of the way that funding for stuff like this happens. We talked about it a little bit with, um, you know, uh, Twilight Zone, you know, and how Rod Serling just kind of really wanted to keep it his vision and, and was, you know, kind of wrote things in a way so that they could be shot cheaper, but also ended up doing, you know, what did he, he basically did ads for whoever wanted ads on his show or, you know, did, you know, sponsorships for whoever wanted that kind of stuff because he needed the money to be able to do what he wanted to do. I think really indicative of the way that like so much of the creative process is just um, controlled by budgets and oftentimes by people who have no idea what the creative process is. And it's so frustrating and can be such a uh, disheartening thing. But then, yeah, what, what a powerful what a powerful moment, what a powerful person to be able to, to affect that change without even raising his voice. You know what I mean? So much of, I think what we think of as powerful oftentimes is associated with being aggressive. And there was such a power in his gentleness that I think was just really um, kind of profound. And, you know, if we're talking about literally ripple effects too, like it wasn't just you know, PBS and NPR, like y'all Dolly Parton's America, the number one podcast in my mind, at least in heart. I don't know if it was statistically, but like the best podcast of 2019 has an NPR podcast, WNYC, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these shows that we think of, you know, they are still being funded in part by these kind of grants and subsidies and funding and, and just that structure and that infrastructure, you know, being shored up by him, is so profound and so huge. And um, what it, what is just gentle way to affect change? I don't know. I'm a very yeah. loud person. <laughs> you guys know this. Anybody that's listened to more than one episode of anything Cinema Lab does knows this. So it's very uh, encouraging to me to kind of see someone like him and know that like there is such a there's such a strength in being gentle. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, you're loud in a joyous way, though. There's a big difference between that and being shouted down. You know, that's it's two different. That's fair. I thank you for that, but it is still loud. So, (laughs) (laughs) some of us need to be loud, though. Um, Well, and I wanted to touch on uh, a reason that Mr. Rogers and uh, you know his speech to the senators and all that um, hits pretty close to home for me uh, as. Some viewers may know I've been part of CMC for almost six years now. Um, the first half of my career was as the production manager at GRTV. Um, and that is a public access station that is run by Community Media Center, which Wealthy Theater is a part of. Um, and when I got into it, I mean, I grew up on GRTV and PBS and that, as Caleb said, there were not a whole lot of channels. But then, of course, once Nickelodeon rolled around, like, got to hop on that and watch Ren and Stimpy and all that good stuff. Uh, Quality show, right? Um, So I grew up on GRTV and seeing, you know, funny shows and weird shows and seeing it as like a platform that people could just make whatever they wanted to and broadcast it out there. 
Um, so I had kind of a different appreciation when I was younger, but when I got into that position and started to learn more of like the societal importance of it and more of kind of our, you know, like legal rights aspect of it, of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Um, and then hearing Fred Rogers fighting for public broadcasting in the same vein, um, just, it's just so powerful. And PBS and public access stations like GRTV are uh, similar, but also very different. So as we said, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is the federal funding corporation that funnels that money to PBS and NPR and things like that. Um, GRTV is what we call a PEG channel, um, and that's public access, education, and government programming. And so those channels are funded through the city, and it's actually specifically money that gets funneled through your cable bill and gets piped back to the city um, to offer different organizations like Community Media Center to be able to facilitate uh, channels like that. And so we actually run two channels, Comcast 24 and 25. Um, so not too long after I started at GRTV is when uh, the FCC and Comcast were getting together and threatening to pull all the funding uh, for public access stations like that. And, you know, many people who aren't familiar might kind of poo-poo it. But there are so many people who come through the doors for GRTV to create programs in the very same spirit of Fred Rogers. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't agree with their show or you think it's silly or whatever it is, um, the fact that there is a platform like that, that anybody could walk in off the streets and come take a class with us and we'll teach you how to use a camera and then we program the show for you. So virtually no cost aside from your membership and the class. Um, the thought that that would be taken away, even though, yes, like cable TV is kind of a dying medium, but still we can shift to the Internet. It's just it's disheartening. And unfortunately, that did go through that the FCC approved it to pull all that funding. So it's only a matter of time. Um, so I think a big takeaway from this, and I know this is like I'm up on my soapbox about GRTV, but I think it's important for people to understand that there are platforms like PBS, like GRTV and all that out there that still need help because there are future Fred Rogers out there that are using these platforms. Um, so, yeah, even though that was what 1969 when Fred Rogers was up there fighting for this, we're still having that same fight. But I think we can pull through. I think if more people understand the heart of shows like this, it can really help. Well, yeah. And I mean, two things on the the public access front. I mean, everybody needs an avenue for expression. Everybody needs to. There's a lot of people out there who feel like they have something inside them or feel like they have something to show or that they can create. But they they never get the chance to do it, mostly because they think that there's no possible way they could ever do it. They look at, you know, a TV show, a big hit TV show, and they think, well, that's millions of dollars. That's a whole crew. That's, you know, how could I ever get there? But I feel like public access is that first step where you just need somebody to say like, well, here's how you do it. Here's how you start. Because for so many people, it's they just need to know that there's a place to start. Um, one of the documentaries that I watched uh, the documentary, It's You I Like, that's on uh, Canopy, the um, library streaming service. 
one of the people that they interview is Judd Apatow, and he talks about very early on working on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and or maybe he was just visiting the set at some point. I mean, this was he was like a kid, and realizing that it wasn't impossible that it was something that even he could do and he he was talking about an interaction he had with fred where he was kind of trying to see like behind where they had the puppets like how do you how do you do that like how you know how how am i seeing what i'm seeing and fred just will come back here like i'll show you how it goes like these are real people doing this and they're not any different than you they didn't have to you know to do anything specific or special they just you know this could be you in here doing this and he said for him that was the beginning of of everything of just like well yeah anybody could could be doing this i think that's a really Uh, great even with grtv i mean there's public access channels all over the country all around um but just speaking for grtv we've got some local legends here that started off by utilizing public access like uh, maynard james keenan from tool his early band used to play on GRTV all the time. Jillian Anderson, who everyone knows from the X-Files, uh, she used to be on GRTV. She actually babysat the current station manager of GRTV or his siblings. I forget. I wish Ted was here so he can talk about it. But um, yeah, a lot of artists get their start doing that in the same way that um, with WYCE, our radio station, that you have local artists that get on the radio and then, you know, start like work their way up beyond that. And by the way, YCE actually started out as an educational radio station, Wyoming Community Education, WYCE, uh, started in 1983. And then we took over in 1987. Um, and even Wealthy Theater, we are an independent venue. We are a platform for up and coming artists to start out at. Think of any artist that's out there, any performing artist, Dolly Parton, you know, anybody they started with gigs on stages like Wealthy Theater, where we've got, you know, the intersection and pyramid scheme and things like that here in town. They all started there. Um, so, Caleb, your point of uh, was Judd Apatow's story of like, you know, how could you do that? I could never do that. Like, that's that's so far out of my reach. But then having someone like Fred Rogers say like, no, 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 come here, I'll show you. Anyone can do it. I think that's the essence of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Fred Rogers and PBS and all that. And I. Mm -hmm. I just love it. If you can't tell, I love it. Yep. Well, speaking Virginia, I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. I I just like listening to you guys talk. Um, Mark Evan Jackson from The Good Place. You might know him also as um, Captain Holt's husband on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Kevin. Um, He also started GRTV and was one of the DJs um, on uh, one of our local radio stations, too. Not YCE, but... um, uh, the one attached to Grand Valley, GBS. Oh, the, isn't it like the whale? I can't remember. It's the, the same. It's the same network that Shelley Irwin is on, and for some reason, and WGVU. Yeah, WGVU. Um, but so he's also, you know, um, a little local legend. But when I think about people that, as someone who didn't grow up in Grand Rapids, but you know, came and was a part of the community for like five years, you know, you guys just did such a massive, loving tribute to the great Daryl Nathan you know, who started, I'm pretty sure just with his keyboard, right? Like he just like did his own thing and then kind of created this kind of following and has such a legacy now that, you know, maybe isn't 
larger than regional, but it kind of is because, you know, you guys have put together such a great, you know, uh, memorial for him that now lives online that people can go and watch it. It's like those kind of people, those kind of artists, you know, I think so much of, uh, what you were just saying, Sarah really rings true. And I'm a, I'm a parent in the middle of a pandemic. So I need about any level of emotion that is either below a four or above a seven to just start crying. <laughs> and so just listening to you guys and I feel very like <laughs> emotional already talking about it, but like, um, Fred Rogers has this quote that, um, a couple of years ago, I used to work at a church and a few years ago, they asked me to, to give a sermon, which was like wild to me as somebody who grew up in a very religious community and kind of like orbited away and then found myself working back at this, this pluralist church. And they had asked me if I wanted to, to, to talk. And I was like, yeah, sure. I can do that. Um, as aforementioned loud. Um, but the, the colleague of mine that, um, kind of acted as clergy for the service, you know, um, I felt very proud of the sermon because I had a quote from Carrie Fisher inside the bulletin. And then it ended with a, uh, Jack kind of reading this quote from um, Fred Rogers. And it was, uh, in an average lifetime, a person walks about 65,000 miles. That's two and a half times around the world. I wonder where your steps will take you. Oh, sorry, crying. Uh, I wonder how you'll use the rest of the miles you're given. Dang. Youch. Right. I mean, I'm going to mute myself because I'm crying, but like, it's <laughs> one of those things where it's like, you know, sometimes all people need is like the tiniest bit of encouragement, you know, the tiniest bit of like, you're not alone. Your voice matters. That kind of stuff it's irreplaceable and to have it be something that is so integral at such a young age, right? Like we've all said, this show was made for children, you know? And so um, I'm glad we're talking about it because, you know, I needed a reason to cry this hour of the day, but um, Virginia, I join you, but I've been watching Mr. Rogers for the last week solid. So You're there's no tears left no, in my exactly. entire body. Right out. <laughs> I'm good for the year, I think. Yeah. It just it just really um, I don't know. You just think about those kind of ripple effects, you know, those waves that people can have and how important, you know, we talk specifically about GRTV and YCE and, and things like that. Um, you know, but to your point, Sarah, you know, there are other public access stations all across the country. And the fact that this is something that, you know, is constantly in danger of, or is being, you know, defunded is really difficult when we look at all the things that money does get thrown at. And I don't know if you guys are a fan of this show, but, um, is pretty integral to my life. Mystery Science Theater 3000 is a really big show. It's also influenced a lot of really big comedians and people that you would know. Um, I kind of liken it to the era of Weird Al Yankovic, right? This idea that parody could be something, this idea that um, not taking anything too seriously and kind of having a yes and to something that's already been made is an art form in and of itself, right? That 
started on a, a public access station in Minneapolis, Minnesota called KTMA for the first like two seasons. And then it got picked up by Comedy Central. And then it got picked up by Sci-Fi after Comedy Central decided to end its contract. So it's like these kind of shows were made like like the original Gypsy Puppet was made with like a kid's car seat. <laughs> like Tom Servo was a gumball machine. You know what I mean? Like all of these things that we see that are so influential and have really like created culture, right? To quote some of my favorite um, people, uh, Bowen Yang and Matt Rogers, who have a fantastic podcast called Las Culturistas, they created culture, you know what I mean? And they really like that culture of comedy, that culture of being in on the joke, you know, um, was created in a studio, a public access studio in Minneapolis. You know what I mean? So I just, I think about that a lot. And especially as, you know, like a parent who also like, I hate ever saying anything like this because it always sounds terrible, but it's like when, like I'm an artist too, you know, like I try to make things and I try to do things that I hope will resonate with people. Right. And just the idea that, you know, a young Judd Apatow was encouraged by Mr. Roger. Like, we would not have had that unnecessary shot of a birthing scene in Knocked Up if it weren't for Mr. Rogers, you guys, you know? So it just, you don't know really where all of that can lead. You don't know where your steps can lead you. You don't know what you can do with the miles that you have left. And that just is such a, I don't know. It hits hard. It hits hard sometimes, you guys. And I just am really feeling it right now. And I'm just like knowing you both individually, but also knowing the work that you do in the community, knowing that like things like this, even that, you know, we used to do this in person and it was like, oh, it was the best because we would have this like feeling of this intimate space. But at one point, you know, we had 60 plus people in a room with us. It wasn't just six of us. It wasn't just 10 of us or the people sitting on stage. We ended up, you know, within that first year, really developing something that people were anticipating and looking forward to. And it made me feel like there was something to look forward to and something to anticipate. And knowing that, like, I don't know, there's always something to be giving money to. There's always something that you can be raising funds for and, and stuff like that. But when we talk about why things like this are important, it's like, it's everything, you know, you said it, Caleb, it's like sports is always the one to get the money. And, you know, when I was in college, I was always like really annoyed by the fact that I would drive by the stadium at 2am after leaving a party and all the stadium lights would be on, but like the English department kept like getting underfunded. And I was just like, can we take some of that electricity money and just route it the other way? You know, so I just, um, that was a lot of feelings and I'm going to mute my mic now because I feel like I've said a lot, <laughs> but it just, uh, I think it's really powerful what you guys do and what the organizations that you work for do. And, you know, if no one else takes anything away from this particular episode, it's that there's such a power in being empowered, right? There's such a gift in, um, being seen and, and being valued, especially at such a young age. But, um, you know, who knows? We might not have had the X-Files if it weren't for GRTV. 
So, you know, I'm not saying, but I'm also not, not saying, you know, sure. so, we never know. We never know. We never know. Well, and, and to jump back um, with what you're saying about uh, Fred Rogers, specifically in Mr. Rogers neighborhood um, of like him teaching the lesson of empathy and giving people a chance and um, you know, that, that kind of aspect of it. I mean, even the name Mr. Rogers neighborhood, I think that that really gets into like the core of, of his show, the word neighborhood. And this reminds me of um, a friend of mine who worked at uh, Westminster Presbyterian church once uh, spoke of folks who are facing um, home, like living situation, home insecurity, I think is the appropriate way to say it they didn't refer to them as oh, homeless people or even talk about the fact that they were facing housing insecurity. There we go. Um, they called them their neighbors. And really, you know, why do you have to put that veil of their socioeconomic status on the front of them to define who they are? The fact that you say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we let the neighbors come in here for dinner every Sunday or whatever it is. I think that ties very heavily into Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, that we are a community, even though it at times feels like we're kind of siloed and there's so many divides, no matter what it was, what it is, even if it's like the uh, geography of where you live, we are all part of this neighborhood on earth, you know? And so to just teach that empathy and to be able to like slow down and listen to somebody's story or put trust in somebody or, you know, those, those little bits of effort of being a kind human goes such a long ways. Um, and I'm really glad that this show kind of rippled out and encouraged other shows similar to it to happen. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit. I know we've mentioned Sesame street, which that show, let me just look at my notes real quick, I believe. Yeah, that started in 1969, and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, as we know, it was 1968. Um, Captain Kangaroo was 1955, and not quite the same vibe. It was still like a kid's show, educational, but a little more vaudeville style. Um, but at least we know around that time period, and most of PBS's programming is kind of in this vein of like education and empathy and like good life skills for kids. But have you guys seen this affect any more modern shows? Um, you know, Caleb, does anything come to mind for you? Other shows that are influenced by him? Uh, I know that there are shows that are influenced by him. I know. Um, but I couldn't point you to one show that has the same atmosphere as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, um, which I think think is kind of sad but inevitable um where i'm not sure how a program that was so um quiet and calm and constantly listening to you the viewer could i don't even know where that would fit in with our landscape now i think that the only the only person that could do it would be fred you know, I, I've been thinking about a lot um, in the last couple of days about if he were still here, what kind of programming he would be making, what kind of contributions he would 
would have for this um, current state. And I know he would have thought of something. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, in the streaming era and in the internet era, just turning on a TV and watching whatever is on kind of isn't a thing anymore um, in various degrees for different people. For me, it's absolutely not a thing. I can't tell you the last time I just turned on the TV and, and watched whatever. Everything is about choice. But I think that he would have adapted into that beautifully or at least worked as hard as he could at it. I just wish I knew what it was. I'm sure a lot of people wish they knew what it was. Um, so yeah, short answer, no. Uh, <laughs> expanded answer, I don't know. If there's a show that that has the same vibe as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, please tell me about it uh, and I will watch it. Well, um, something you said there of his show being quiet, but also more importantly that he would listen to the viewers. Like, let's just think about that for a second. This is prior to the internet and being able to do exactly what we're doing here of essentially hopping on, you know, what kind of looks like a, a TV situation and talking to the person or anyone who's watching this could comment and interact with us. Um, the fact that prior to that technology being a thing that he created an atmosphere that felt like that mm -hmm. is unbelievable. And when you were talking about that, I think you're, you're very right that most shows don't exactly have that same kind of atmosphere. But if you think about some more modern shows, like one that comes to mind for me is uh, Blue's Clues and even Dora the Explorer. They try to have these interactive aspects that I think are um, inspired by that concept. Mm -hmm. So like uh, Dora the Explorer will ask the audience like, you know, where's this or whatever. And Blue's Clues was the same way. Like, do you see it? Do you know what Blue is trying to say? And it's that like pausing to let the kids at home hopefully scream at the TV, whatever the answer is. But that's still not the same. And Fred yeah. Rogers, yes, he would be talking at the camera, but I don't know. It just felt like you and Fred were having this really intimate moment when you were watching. When you, when you go back and watch uh, any episodes, it doesn't matter the era of neighborhood. Um, what strikes you is just how long he lets moments just exist. You know, he'll say, let's look at this thing and you look at it and here's how this thing works. Or, you know, let's just let's just spend time with this thing for a minute and sit quietly with it. And you think, well, I mean, what is it? That's dead air. That's that's boring. Uh, kids need, you know, fast pace. Kids are going to get bored. And I think it's just I think that's rubbish. I think that uh, that's a common misconception that kids need constant stimulation. It's the opposite. They need to quietly be eased into some things. They need to just sit with something and learn how to be patient and learn how to appreciate one simple thing for as long as they want to appreciate it. Uh, and that's enough. Who's made a difference in your life? Oh, a lot of people. But a lot of people who have allowed me to have some silence. And I don't think we give that gift very much anymore. I'm very concerned that our society is much more interested in information than wonder, in noise, 
rather than silence. How do we do that? I mean, in our business, yours and mine, how do we encourage reflection? Oh my, this is a noisy world. You know, and I, I don't know how, I don't know where else you'd find that. Like you said, Blues Clues is a great one. Door of the Explorer. They were definitely, was 100% influenced by Mr. Rogers um, in that way, where at least it, it gives kids a minute to kind of be part of it. Um, but I think that the distinction with me is that I can't imagine a, a live action um, centering on one person, one actor. Uh, well, not that he was an actor, but a persona, you know, as opposed to animation or as opposed to, okay, it's this guy, but he's at least got a cartoon dog. You know, it's like, I mean, Fred did it just in one room with, with nothing, with just, he had a, you know, a chair and he had his shoes and he had the fish and, uh, you know, actual, just automatic, you know, trolley. And you talk about the low budget of the, of the show, it was all about doing everything with nothing without any bells and whistles or special effects or just kind of being in that room with him. It's like, he was the special effect, the magic of his demeanor and his voice and the atmosphere that he created was the only special effect he needed. And that was free. Virginia, did I can't you believe have... you didn't, you didn't bring up the cardigan. You brought up the shoes, you brought up the fish. You didn't even bring up the sweater. Important part. I mean, I wore my cardigan uh, today just for that reason. <laughs> I do have one, and it, but my my kids took it and it's on the floor over there. But kids. I do have one. Um, no, I was. They love to be warm. He loves a layer. What can I say? Um, he just also face planted. So my, I'm glad that my mic is off because he went to bend down to get his bottle and just tipped right over. Um, <laughs> there was a show in the 90s on Nickelodeon that I got to watch on my dad's weekends when he got cable. It was called Nick News with Linda Ellerby. I don't know if you guys ever remembered this or ever saw it. What can you make with garbage? I built buildings out of uh, automobile tires and aluminum cans. And is this the house of the future? Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Find out this week on the show that asks the questions. Nick News. It was a news show that was completely devoted to, like, news, like, for kids. Like, about kids, for kids. But she, Linda Ellerby is like... Um, I encourage everyone to give her a quick goog as well. She's like a very established like journalist and, and was, I think prior to the show. And then after the show, she had like a very long career. She's like written books and stuff done a lot of like motivational speaking and things like that. Um, but she had this show that I think it ran for like five seasons on Nickelodeon. Um, let me, uh, Oh, sorry, 92 to 2015. So um, it moved to Noggin eventually, um, but it had 178 episodes and it, it holds the, the record uh, for the longest running Nickelodeon series. So it was a show on a kids network, kind of, you know, she wrote and produced it, obviously, and there were grownups that, you know, were making it, but it was also, you know, included a lot of... Um, children and like kid reporters and I'm pretty sure and I don't want to speak out of turn but I'm pretty sure 
uh, Her Royal Highness Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, when she was younger and did her uh, like news campaign about uh, a, an overly feminine gendered advertising campaign and how she was against it and thought that it was unnecessary. I'm pretty sure Nick News was the one that was like, that put it out. I could have misspoken on that, but I'm pretty sure it was at least featured on Nick News. So this was a show that really similarly, I think in tone, you know, obviously they weren't talking about like the stock market or, you know, um, like war rumblings across the world, but sometimes they were, you know, and sometimes they were. And so what it was is this, this show that really was able to kind of, um, concentrate the idea of news into something that was digestible for children without talking down to them as well. And so it was a really cool, um, it was a really cool show. Uh, she's somebody that, uh, I think would be really cool to, to sort of, she's, um, I want to say she's, uh, she's definitely still alive, but, um, she is in, she's 76. Uh, so she's she's still around, and I think that um, you know someone like that obviously must have been. I, I haven't read any interviews, so I can't really speak. Sorry, my kid just fell again. <laughs> I can't really speak to um, the direct influence, but I, I think tonally that was probably a very similar, um, similarly spirited show. Well, and there have been studies too on um, how kids respond better learning from their peers. So to have like a news style platform that essentially is like kid to kid um, is of course going to get to them a lot better than just plopping them down in front of CNN or whatever, (laughs) you know. My kid really likes to watch 2020. (laughs) I kind of figured. Sarah, have you, have you seen these couple of comments that have come in? Yes. I am currently working on an answer to one of them. Um, Sorry. Okay. So you guys want to keep chatting i'm almost oh, well, done i just have to get a picture up it's the most important part of it <laughs> let me let me preemptively answer i'll say the answer and then well it's not really a question but i'll i'll respond to the comment and then you can display the comment um, because it kind of relates to what we've been talking about um as far as what current programs or what post mr rogers programs you know what what of those exist that you could you could also kind of feed off of but um part of my sort of despair when i think about you know how could that exist today or what what would that look like what version of that would be today um i still don't have an answer but uh one of fred rogers quotes was the outside world of children has changed but the inner world never has and never will because you think about this show starting in 1968 and going through the decades and more and more decades and how far we've come and how far we haven't come in certain ways from 1968. And you just think, I think it's the age group too, that the show was aimed at, even though we can enjoy it as adults, even though kind of all ages can get something out of it, but that sort of age two to six region no matter what time you're brought up in, I think like you're the inner world of the child is the same, no matter what century you're talking about, no matter what part of the world, the five-year-old in 1968 is still the five-year-old 
2020. And the fact that he was speaking directly to that child and saying, no matter what's going on, no matter what's changed, no matter what you know advancements we've made, and no matter how many steps backward we've taken, these are kind of irrelevant to what we're talking about, you and I in this room. And that there's not a specific way to solve these problems or to move forward, but here's what you need in your heart and in yourself to deal with whatever it is. And I think that's one of the reasons that you could watch Mr. Rogers a hundred years from now, and it wouldn't matter because he's saying, you know, it's not about technology. It's not about changing the outside world. Human beings are still going to be human beings in the same original way in that, um, that childhood way that, you know, here's the basic set of how to deal with things. And that hopefully, you know, would never change. Yeah. Like, even though we're saying now, man, history seems to be repeating itself. It's, it's kind of inevitable for some things, even if it's not literally repeating itself, there's going to be parallel issues down the line. Um, so I think what you're saying of him being kind of timeless with the lessons that he teaches, I think is really significant too. Um, and then also, I just want to pull up this first comment here from uh, one of our favorite viewers, Caleb's mom, Mary. Hey, Mary, what's up? Of uh, his consistency too. So not only the way that he phrases things to be timeless and applicable um, in a versatile way, but I think that consistency is really important. And we mentioned that with the Senate hearing, um, that the way that he talks to kids and adults is very similar. It's it's calm, it's collected, it's never condescending or belittling or anything like that. And he just had a way of silencing the room, no matter the age group in the room. And it's it's just incredible. Um, the other comment that kind of piggybacks off of this here uh, from Patty, thank you so much for commenting here. And anyone else who wants to comment, please feel free to, and we'll try to get to them if we can. Um, but Patty's question of, are there any episodes that we remember regarding empathy or non-discrimination? And of course, we have to bring up one in particular. So let me try to do this the most technologically elegant way I hopefully can. Oh my gosh, there we go. I did it. Okay. This episode. So this is the episode when um, Mr. Rogers invites Officer Clemens to come and talk with him, and they put their feet in the pool to cool down because it's a hot day. Hi, Officer Clemens, come oh, in. Mr. Rogers, how are you? Fine, won't you sit down? Oh, sure, just for a moment. It's so warm, I was just uh, putting some water on my feet. Oh, it sure is. Would you like to join me? It looks awfully enjoyable, but I don't have a towel or anything. Oh, you share mine. Okay. Sure. Oh, come along, man. I'll put some more water in here. Oh. This is gonna turn into a beautiful day. This episode aired on uh, May 9th, 1969, and was incredibly powerful because although the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, at the time of this filming, many pools ac across the country were still segregated. And I mean, we've seen the horrific pictures of how people of color were treated in pools, you know, people walking around pouring chemicals into it, things like that. So the fact that he could invite Officer Clemens here in his episode and not make it a big grandiose kind of moment, but just, again, the consistency of his messaging. It's, it's calm, it's quiet, it's subtle, it's 
incredibly heartfelt and that he shares this moment with a black man of putting their feet in the same pool at a time when this gentleman might not be able to do that in public. And he's doing this on a nationally successful show is unbelievable. I was just talking with my television friends and thinking about uh, many different ways of saying I love you. Singing is one of my ways of saying I love you. Oh, I know that. Do you have time to, uh, to give a song to my friend and me? I sure do. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say I love you. There's the singing way to say. So they did this in, I think you said 1970? 69. Uh, 69. Mm-hmm. So this is about 20, 30 years later. They they did kind of a repeat of the same scene, which I never knew about until I was watching that documentary, um, where this just sort of organically happens again. And it's a little callback to that 1969 scene, which is such a beautiful little moment and is not played for anything. It's not, you know, it's, it's not winking at the audience. It's not going, Hey, look what we're doing here. Because you wouldn't do that with a, a kid either. You wouldn't do that with a five-year-old. You would the five-year-old just sees here's two people, the end. There's no differentiation of, you know, there's 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 nothing different about these two guys. They're just enjoying a moment together. And what's a better lesson than that? Well, that was so enjoyable. I'm sorry I couldn't stay longer. Well, I know how busy you are. <sighs> But sometimes just a minute like this will really make a difference. Right. Well, that even ties back to Virginia saying earlier, it's all about leveling that playing field. Whether it's, you know, race, gender, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter. It's an accessible show. It's an accessible platform. These are stories that anyone could, you know, identify themselves in or see in their everyday life. Um, and yeah, Caleb, like you said, that he's not doing a big like, oh, hey, see what we're doing? It's not a stunt. It's never a stunt for Mr. Rogers. It's this is his neighbor. Why wouldn't he let him come over and cool his feet down? You know, I do love and appreciate the biblical nature of the washing of the feet, though, for anybody who's. Oh, yeah. You know, looking for that. That's amazing. That's great. You know, that's another interesting aspect when I saw um one of the documentaries about Mr. Rogers and learned that, uh, you know, he went to school, got his bachelor's and uh, at a seminary school. And so is a minister, is that right? Priest, minister. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he's not also, and not that this is a bad thing, but you would almost expect a minister to turn a kid's show into a very heavily religious show, you know, do what you want to do. That's your message. But the fact that he doesn't, but brings like the heart and the love behind many religions and puts it into a show in a non-religious way. Do you know if that makes sense? Um, I think is just uh, incredible. And I think it also makes the conversation of religion and some of those core values more accessible for people without it being branded as, you know, Christian or Jewish or Muslim or whatever it is. 
uh, it's the universal language of love is what he's after. Well, yeah, I mean, Virginia, I feel like a lot of times you talk about Christ-like behavior versus a specifically rigid, you know, Christian, these are the rules sort of thing. And I feel like without getting too crazy about it, this show is so Christ-like. I don't mean to like <laughs> bait no, you there I, to I, talk I, about it, but I, I'm curious what you have to say. I was pulling up a, a verse that, um, so I grew up, as I said a little bit earlier, uh, extremely religious. I grew up Southern Baptist and uh, went to religious school all the way through high school. Um, so my life uh, for a long time was very devoted to one kind of faith practice. And then when I was leaving that um, during college, I didn't just like leave. It was not just a very cut off kind of a thing. I, if I was going to leave, I kind of needed to know why. So I ended up, um, accidentally minoring in religious studies. And I say accidentally very intentionally because I just was taking classes, um, that were interesting to me that I wanted to know more about. And then it got to the point where my, um, advisor was like, you know, like you just need like two more classes and you have like another minor. Right. And I was like, dope, I'll do that. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, this idea of, of, of being Christ-like as someone who no longer uh, personally identifies as particularly faith-based, but now at, you know, I'm almost 32, I've, I've definitely come to um, an appreciation and a healing from maybe a lot of the traumatic uh, events that were not unique to my experience, but also were uniquely mine and wholly mine, right? And so in a lot of uh, the work that I do, I say that in quotes, because it always just sounds stupid. Um, but in a lot of the work that I do, right, a lot of the like, things that I make, I, I think I have um, a through line of this exploration of what it means to be Christ-like, right? The word Christian itself, uh, if you look at the etymology of, of the word, the suffix I-A-N actually denotes uh, a likeness or, or a similarity or being, uh, being uh, like something. So Christian can actually translate um, directly to the phrase Christ-like. And I think a lot of times, uh, again, without getting too heavy into it, but like specifically in our current, you know, within the last, you know, 10, 15, 250 years, right? There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of opportunity to equate power with a, a particular faith and to exert it in a way that can often be very exclusionary to, you know, certain people groups because of the way that one person or, you know, um, a group of people decides to interpret a, a thing. But um, one of my favorite verses that I'm just going to pull up to read because I don't have it quite memorized anymore. Um, but uh, there's a, a verse in the Bible, the Christian Bible, First uh, John 2, 4 through 6, and it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, right? And so one of the ways that you can interpret this verse is that, you know, um, 
you don't necessarily have to run around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But if you are someone who acts within the parameters of how Christ was, if you are indeed Christ-like, much like many religious figures that we can all revere and, and regardless of our practice or not practice kind of can agree that there's a commonality of that strength in character. Right. So this idea that his life was his testimony, that he didn't have to say it, that he just lived it. And, and then when people found out he was a Christian, people could be like, Oh yeah, I see that. Oh, Oh cool. That makes sense. Like that kind of, um, behavior, that kind of way to sort of, uh, be an artist, right? Because he absolutely was that sort of way to, um, live your life for me anyway, um, is so much more powerful than any of the other more overtly, um, verbal ways, right? That one could be sort of shouting it from the rooftops, not to say that there is not value in that. And I please do not mean to disparage or have any sort of, you know, inclination one way or the other. These are all my own personal, I mean, my views do not reflect that of GRTV or WYCE or any of the other affiliation organizations affiliated with tonight's programming. But to that point, I think that that is uh, probably for me, like one of his most powerful legacies, because there's such a, um, a tangible, uh, walking the talk, you know, that I think, um, probably has done a lot more for, um, for the cause of, of any one particular faith than being loud and being showy, you know? Um, and that's, again, it's that power in being, um, being not quiet, but, um, being subdued, being calm, being sure enough in yourself that you don't need to yell about it. You can just be confidently, um, kind of going about the world in a a gentle way, you know, much like Christ did. Woo. Tied it all together. Boom. Well, yeah. When I, when I talked earlier about Fred's timeline and sort of said that he, you know, derailed his life from being a minister and instead got into this TV thing. You think about it, it's like, well, did he really change vocations that much? Or did he just figure out this ingenious way to preach without being preachy and to teach without being a teacher and to spread these messages of peacefulness and acceptance of everyone and tolerance of everyone without hitting you over the head with it? Yeah, man. Well, and, uh, two two other notes uh, to follow up with that. He he does have the quote of, "You don't need to speak overtly about religion in order to get a message across," which I think mm-hmm. is the point that we're getting at here. Um, actually, three points. One of them is a comment that I'm going to pull up here. Mary had a really good point here that uh, Fred Rogers was a Presbyterian minister, and as she said in her church, service to others was the number one mission of the church. And I think he certainly follows that. Um, the other thing, too, of not having to, like, speak overtly, you know, religious or whatever the the uh, message is that you're trying to get across. I think this even ties to our talk about um, the Twilight Zone when we were getting into, like, the 
social, political, cultural subtext of a lot of the episodes. Um, and yes, some were more like literal and on the nose, but many of them had just the subtext of the message of learning about, you know, climate change or racial issues or sexism or whatever that message is. And even in the Twilight Zone, we see that's a well-crafted show that doesn't have to scream it from the rooftops. And to Virginia's point, not to say that's a bad thing, but it just goes to show that the subtlety of getting that message across can be just as powerful, if not sometimes maybe more so. I mean, again, to pull up that image and you put yourself back in the late 60s with the civil unrest and the racial disparities in America and to see this image on TV when TV at this time was a coveted platform and we didn't have public access as we talked about in the vein of like GRTV and that kind of public access. So to see these two people on screen on this platform that's just like, holy cow, I wish I could be there. I wish I could get in this little box and, you know, make my own show. And to see that on screen in, you know, hundreds of thousands of homes across America without it being an overt message of, check this out, we're breaking down racial barriers. It's just, no, hey guys, this is my neighbor. It's hot out. We're going to put our feet in the pool. But you know it's intentional because that dude kept his cardi on while he was pulling his feet. <laughs> you, know, you know what? The same way, this though. is the outfit. Dude, I, I am notorious for wearing pants in the summer and I love sweaters. So I I, I don't know. Fred and I are on the same wavelength there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Um, wow, you guys, we've covered so much ground and I feel like we brought it pretty well full circle even tying to other episodes um, so I think we could kind of wind it down here and then we'll pitch to the radically emotionally different thing that we're doing next for our next episode. But are there any other points that you guys wanted to bring up? Anything else about Fred Rogers we should talk about? Yeah. Can I bring up a really quick, uh, fun fact corner <clears throat> that has nothing to do with extreme emotions or, um, anything biblical or, uh, race relations or anything. give me the yeah. bar trivia. I need it. Fun fact corner. Um, I knew part of this, but I didn't know the other part until doing research for this episode, which was that George Romero, also a lifelong resident of Pittsburgh, uh, obviously director of Night of the Living Dead, Fred Rogers and George Romero are doing things sort of at the same time. Um, Romero's first job was as a production assistant working on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He produced several filmed segments that are in episodes that you can watch, including How Light Bulbs Are Made, and notoriously, Mr. Rogers Gets a Tonsillectomy, um, which Romero joked that Mr. Rogers Gets a Tonsillectomy is the scariest film I've ever made. What I really mean is that I was scared to death while I was trying to pull it off. He was talking about being an extremely young nowhere filmmaker and Fred Rogers taking a chance on him and saying, you know, make me the, give me these uh, filmed supplement segments that I can drop into the show that are dealing with, you know, just real life scenarios that maybe kids can understand going to the dentist isn't uh, that scary. So that's George Romero's first directing gig. Um, the part that I did know is that later on, uh, Romero wanted to cast, um, Lady Aberlin herself, Betty Aberlin, 
from the land of make believe uh, as the lead in Night of the Living Dead. And Fred sort of pulled him aside and said, I respect you. I love you as a filmmaker. You're very talented. Please do not cast her in this movie. <laughs> so <laughs> my mind was sort of blown thinking about Lady Aberlin being the lead in Night of the Living Dead. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah, I think That's that would have. That would have changed her career and probably would have changed the tone a little bit of uh, Mr. Rogers. A little bit. Although you got uh, Chuck Aber, neighbor Aber, also from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, later to be an absolute scumbag in Silence of the Lambs. Anybody? Have you seen that connection? Wait, who is he in Silence of the Lambs? Uh, he's the super sleazy uh, FBI. Oh, man. I made a note of it and then I deleted it because I was like, you'll never bring this up. You'll never talk about this <laughs> on the episode. Just look up Chuck Aber, Silence of the Lambs and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and just prepare to have your mind melted. Oh boy. Yeah. Yikes. All right, you guys. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to us talk about Mr. Rogers. Um, as a reminder, we are a program of the Community Media Center, which is what we talked about earlier with uh, GRTV, our public access station, WYCE, which was a community education radio station and is now a world of music, which is volunteer powered and listener sponsored. There you go. How do you love that? <laughs> Healthy Theater is also part of it, the Rapidian, and we have tech services too. And if you like programs like Screen Club and Cinema Lab, please consider making a donation, whether you go to wealthytheater.org slash donate or GRCMs. Um, but help us in the same way that Fred Rogers was pleading to the Senate to ensure that programming like this is available and accessible, um, because that is our mission here. So, you guys, thank you so much for taking the time out of your nights to talk and listen and I don't know I think we covered a lot of really cool things and I'm looking forward to seeing how Caleb jazzes it up in the podcast so yeah any last thoughts any recommendations of what we should watch next oh well I'm not gonna take your guys's thing that you were probably gonna say what was I gonna say you don't know what you were gonna say no tell me what I'm gonna say you and Virginia wouldn't she say something about kidding? Oh, yes. Huh, dang, like I didn't even think about that. The only obvious thing dang. that is like specifically inspired by Mr. Rogers? Well, yeah, I was going to. Oh, yeah, you were going <laughs> to? No, no, no. I was going to say, what is it called? Um, my or my teacher, the octopus or something like that. That's on Netflix, which is, I haven't watched it yet, but everyone says it's oh, just like, yeah. I was going to go with feel good, but yeah, kidding is definitely uh I mean, it's, it's literally a riff on mr rogers you guys right and we did oh. a screen club on it yeah 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 oh i know <laughs> but really it's dark and it's not yeah yeah i know kind of feel bad to it yeah it's like if you want to feel bad and watch jim carrey's character have like a mental breakdown wow producer. Well, that's why i wanted you guys to bring it up Oh, so we could say the bad Mostly one. Just, like, yeah. if you like Michelle Gondry, also <laughs> check it out because it's it's dope. And he, uh, I think, he didn't direct any of them, but he, well, maybe he directed the pilot. I don't know. He's definitely like 
an EP mm-hmm. and is very much involved in the style of the show. Um, and the, and there's actually some really cool, I'm glad you brought this up, Caleb, but you know us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> there's some really cool BTS on how they shot a lot of the episodes as well, because it's using a lot of, um, uh, kind of rotating, uh, sets, but also like a lot of like, um, steady cam stuff that in between moving around, they'd have the actors kind of move. And then the sets, the dressing of the sets would change within a span of like 15 seconds because they would do these like live action. Um, come here, buddy. They would do these live action, uh, you know, takes that were really kind of cool. And, you know, um, Reese's suggestion that he came over here and crash landed to tell me um, was that you should check out Fantasia, a.k.a. his favorite movie of all time, because even though it definitely has some uh, questionable questionable depictions of racial equality uh, and definitely something that we can all learn from because it was made back in 1940, um, it's a really cool one if you're looking for something to occupy a 14 month old baby for an hour plus, because those colors are very cool and it's mostly just classical music. So hot tip for all you parents out there, don't play baby shark for your kid. Cause then you'll have to keep listening to baby shark, play something that you will enjoy listening to over and over and over again. And guess what I like? Um, the nutcracker. So there you go. Speaking of listening, uh, if you want some more Mr. Rogers magic, make sure to check out Johnny Costa's beautiful jazz music that he um, composed for the show. And I had not heard this on its own uh, ever until uh, last week. And there's a great compilation on Spotify. I think it's just a compilation album. And I think it's just... I mean, just search Johnny Costa, and one of his albums is Johnny Costa plays the music of of Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, and it's so delightful, and it's so calming, and pleasing, and adventurous, and playful, and it's you know, next time you're just gonna do lo-fi beats to study to in the background, don't do that. Do Johnny Costa. It's so much more stimulating. It's so much more heartwarming and heart expanding than that so give it a try how dare you shade lo-fi beats girl and her cat i was gonna say that's (laughs) that's my go-to lo-fi hip-hop yeah well that's a great recommendation though that's cool i'll definitely check it out all right you guys thank you so much until next time we'll see ya you know it happens so often I walk down the street and someone 20 or 30 or 40 years old will come up to me and say, you are Mr. Rogers, aren't you? And then they tell me about growing up with the neighborhood and how they're passing on to the children they know what they found to be important in our television work. Like expressing their feelings through music and art and dance and sports and drama and computers and writing and and invariably we end our little time together with a hug. I'm just so proud of all of you who have grown up with us, and I know how tough it is some days to look with hope and confidence on the months and years ahead. But I would like to tell you what I often told you when you were much younger. I like you just the way you are. And what's more, I'm so grateful to you for helping the children in your life 
to know that you'll do everything you can to keep them safe and to help them express their feelings in ways that will bring healing in many different neighborhoods. It's such a good feeling to know that we're lifelong friends.